0: Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Alan Jetty, talks with authors about the most interesting, and sometimes surprising, aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty.
1: Hello, this is Alan Jetty. I'm Editor-in-Chief of the journal Physical Therapy, and I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. I'm delighted to have with me today Dr. Leo Costa, who's a professor of physical therapy in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Welcome, Leo. Uh,
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Alan.
1: Well, I'm really interested in talking with you about the study that you and your colleagues just published in physical therapy entitled Movement System Impairment-Based Classification Treatment versus General Exercises for Chronic Low Back Pain, a randomized controlled trial. What I thought I would do, Leo, is I'll give listeners a little synopsis of the study, and then we'll go and talk about some of my questions. Let's do it. Well, briefly, the focus of the study was on different classification systems. And as the authors talk about in the introduction to their article, to enhance treatment effects, classification systems have been developed to classify folks who have low back pain into more homogeneous subgroups that then lead to specific treatments for each subgroup. This randomized controlled trial compared the efficacy of one particular classification system called Movement System Impairment, or MSI model, with the treatment consisting of symptom-guided stretching and strengthening exercises. The investigators involved 148 folks who had chronic low back pain from a university physical therapy clinic in Brazil. Assessors were blinded to group assignment, and the intervention was an eight week treatment of either a treatment program based on the MSI classification system or one based on the stretching and strengthening exercises in the comparison group. The investigators found that there were no significant between group differences for the primary outcomes, which were pain intensity and disability at two months as well as at four and six months, as well as no significant uh, between group differences in their secondary outcome measures. Is that a fair summary, Leo? Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, my first question, I was interested that you chose the movement system impairment classification and you compared it to general stretching and strengthening exercises. Could you talk a little bit about why you chose those two treatment programs to compare?
0: Basically, rationale for the study itself was that, firstly, uh, back pain is a very complex condition. Back pain involves structural, physiological, and psychosocial components. And, unfortunately, diagnostic accuracy studies clearly show that we still truly don't know what would be the sources of back pain precisely. We have some ideas, we have some data, but we're not 100% 100% sure what is going on and as a consequence all clinical press guidelines researchers like me we prefer to label these patients as non-specific low back pain in most of the cases and i'm 100% sure that this label of non-specific low back pain is very frustrating for both clinicians and researchers and for public health systems and over the last two decades subgroup systems were developed there's quite a lot of subgrouping strategies across the globe, and MSI is just one of them. One of my PhD students, the first author of this trial, Daniel Azevedo, he's a very enthusiastic physio about MSI. He did his training in Washington with Chile Salman and Linda Van Dielen, and he asked me if he could do some studies on the MSI approach. So I found out a window of opportunity to study this type of subgroup because it has never been investigated in a clinical trial. The second reason for using a subgrouping study is that most of subgrouping trials so far are very poorly designed or very small or there's a lot of problems. So we decided to test the MSI on a large, high-quality trial. So this is the rationale. So this is a very personal thing from Daniel and also because no one has studied this type of subgroup. In terms of the control group, which is a very interesting question, we try to use the best practice for back pain in the moment. So if you read all clinical practice guidelines, most clinical practice guidelines you suggest for chronic back pain patients to receive either exercise, including strengthening and stretching exercise, and some components of manual therapy. In order to just reduce the noise of the study, we just, take it out, we took the mental therapy component, and because we are pretty confident that uh, this is the best practice in physical therapy. So we decided to compare the MSI against best practice in physical therapy instead of comparing it against a placebo control group or a non-treatment group because there's also quite a lot of evidence that most exercise programs are better than nothing and are better than placebo. So we tried to also reduce the research waste on this as well. So if you want to use a subgrouping approach, it has to be at least as good as general best practice approach so that's why we decided to use these types of interventions
1: and your research hypothesis would be that the msi classification treatment approach would be superior to usual care
0: yes i know So are truly separating different subgroups we do expect that the treatment selection would be better although as a skeptical researcher There's quite a lot of studies comparing subgroup approaches against non subgrouping approaches, and they never found a difference. So in terms of skepticism, I was pretty skeptical about that. As a clinician, I think it makes sense to test the subgroup approaches and to see if it's worthwhile to use them or not. So I think my best answer is yes and no.
1: Yes, it makes sense, I understand. And for listeners who are interested, in the December issue of PTJ, there's a very nice perspective discussion on the MSI classification approach for those who might be interested to learn more about it. One thing that interested me, Leo, uh, as someone who's done a lot of work in the area of gerontology, you excluded patients who were over the age of 65. Why did you do that? Well,
0: over the last eight years since I started doing clinical trials, my research group have done about 15 trials in back pain. In all trials, we included elderly people, so we went up to from 18 years old to 80 years old. And the reason for that is there is strong evidence that age does not really interfere in the outcomes for patients with chronic back pain. So it doesn't really matter if you include them or not. The average treatment effect will be roughly the same. However, we have been always been criticized by exercise physiology, and I agree with them in this statement that the response to exercise could be different in this population, elderly people, compared to adults and uh, young adults. So we decided for the first time to exclude these patients. So we get up to 65 and not to up to 80, as we've done in the past. And now I got the first question about this.
1: The mean age of
0: our trial, yeah, that's quite funny. We never know what's going to happen when we design a trial. Our mean age from our trial is 40 to 41, I think, in both groups. And uh, our older trials has about 42, 43. So it's not that different from most trials. I have the, I have a look on my flow chart here, and I've just seen that we only excluded seven patients that are older than 60. So my gut feeling is that even if you have included these patients into the trial, it's pretty unlikely that this would influence the results of this particular trial anyways. But uh, I'm with you, Alan. I would rather prefer to include all patients because I think elderly patients are very neglected in, in trials in MSK fields. So my personal view is that we should include them.
1: It's an interesting dilemma. You're going to be criticized no matter which side you come down on that issue.
0: I'm just in the fence at the moment, so
1: <laughs> yep, i got to way. I understand completely. I've been very interested in the issue of treatment dose, and I was struck that you chose 12 physical therapy sessions over an eight-week period. You had two sessions per week for the first four weeks and then one session per week for the second week. This is always a really difficult decision you have to make in a trial. Could you talk a bit about the rationale for the dosage that you chose?
0: Yeah, this, this is this is pretty tricky, isn't it? Like uh, I've been talking to my students for ages that the profession of physical therapy needs to understand a bit better about those of everything we use. We still don't know what's going to be the best. The idea from the MSI, because the MSI we try to identify movement patterns that are provoking symptoms or likely to provoke symptoms, and you actually need to change motor control and the behavior of patients while you're doing certain types of movements. we were advised to do like a longer treatment in terms of period. So that's why we decided to go for an eight-week period. The rationale for two sessions per week and then one per week after four weeks, is to reduce the dependency of the physical therapy over the course of the trial. So try to make the patient as independent as possible. So for me, this makes sense. Uh, it could be six weeks or ten weeks. As I said to you, it's really rare in physical therapy field to try comparing exercise dosages for our patients. So we need to study this as well. The second reason yes. is that in terms of physiology for the control group, We need to give patients a time for the muscles to adapt for the exercise programs anyway. So any exercise involving strengthening, for example, we couldn't use like a very short period of time to observe changes in the muscle and what's going on with this patient. So again, Alan, it's not an easy question at all. We try to mimic the system we use here in Brazil, I would prefer to give a, if actually a higher dose, but the adherence would be terrible. So it, it has to make a balance what is feasible and what is reasonable to provide to these patients.
1: It's a real challenge, and, and I agree it with is. you. We don't have enough data on dosage, and it's, it's something I hope we get more studies on going forward.
0: Our research group just finished a trial on Pilates, and one of the students decided to, for example, use the doses of at once a week, twice a week, and three times a week, and she's doing economic evaluations, all those sort of things. Hopefully, they're going to submit to PTJ as well, and okay. it's a really interesting trial that compared different doses, and I haven't seen so many people doing this.
1: Well, we'll be looking forward to receiving that manuscript. <laughs> you know, that leads me to the next dilemma that you and your colleagues face. You chose to include a home exercise program for both groups. Could you talk a bit about why you did that and some of the trade-offs that you considered in doing so?
0: We tried to mimic clinical practice uh, in the first place. So I know quite well the American system and the Brazilian system was quite dependent on the therapy. So patients go to physical therapy, do the exercise, and don't do at home. So over the last decade, physical therapists in Brazil are trying to prescribe home exercise for the patients. So it's it's quite the current practice at the moment here. And again, for the control group, talking to exercise physiologists, all of them say you need at least three times a week of exercise for getting benefits. So for the control group we would need at least one additional session of exercise for them for the first four weeks and two additional sessions on the on the second part of the treatment. And the MSI is even worse because the MSI is about changing behavior of the patient. So, patients has to move differently over the time and also practicing exercise at home, which seems like the McKenzie approach. You need to do lots of times, lots of ex- exercise over a period of time. So, again, a long-term prevent- intervention program was needed. We need to provide more exercise to these patients, and it's just not possible to do this in the clinic. So we ask patients, we insist the patients to do this exercise at home, and we are roughly successful in this. And again, we just want to replicate what what happened in clinical practice.
1: One of the challenges that I could see in your choice, I understand completely why you did it. It makes good sense. In some ways, it made the two treatment groups a little more alike, by doing that. Yes, I agree. And that is challenging given the findings of your study. The other interesting finding that I saw was the control comparison group was more adherent to the home program than the MSI classification group. The mean difference was close to 18%. Yes. Did you talk a little bit about that? I was surprised.
0: Yeah, this was surprising for us. But, again, after seeing the results, we thought a lot about this, what's going on in there. Basically, for the readers, the MSI group has a lot of patients were less adherent compared to the control group. Was Like I said, nearly close to 18%. Our best guess on this was the MSI exercises are very specific and much harder to do compared to general exercise. So, for example, you have to ask patients to bend their knees without moving their spine. It's completely different than ask patients just to move their knees. So, again, it's a hard exercise to do at home without supervision compared to general exercise. So this is one likely explanation. What it's just doing at the moment is that you're doing a couple of secondary analyses on this trial, and one is about adherence because we also got a bit surprised about the results. We used a questionnaire that measured key concepts of exercise program. So basically we asked patients why they're doing the exercise, so they're understanding the key concepts of each arm of the study. And we also measure how they perform the the exercise. So the physio doing like a score and high scores are equivalent that the patients are performing the exercise correctly or not. So basically on this question, what we found is that patients who understand the key concepts of the exercise and do the exercise better predict adherence only for the MSI group, but not the general exercise group. So this is what we found. So we think that patients who truly understand what they're doing, they are more adherent compared to the control group. The second thing we've done is that we have a look on if this adherence changed the effects of the trial. And the adherence did not predict the treatment effect, so this doesn't explain the main results of the trial. So we are on the writing process of this study. It's going to be a paper pretty much about adherence, and it's a secondary analysis. We need to be careful about this. We decided to do this secondary analysis after publishing the trial itself because everyone was reading the paper was commenting about treatment adherence. So the first result is adherence did not change the main results of the trial, but patients who understand what they're doing are more likely to be adherents compared to that, not just for the MSI group, not for the general exercise group.
1: I think that will be useful to have in the literature.
0: I think so. I think so. Having said that, Alan, there's a lot of studies showing that adherent patients are more likely to get more benefits compared to the control group. This was not the case for our particular
1: trial. Yes, it it is, again, surprising. You know, you were sufficiently powered so that we can nicely interpret your finding of no difference. But you didn't talk much in the article about your disability questionnaire, the Roland Morris. Did you have any concern about its sensitivity to detect uh, clinically meaningful change in this population?
0: Well, my first question, without thinking too much about this, is no. And I'm going to give you some information on this. I participated in a group of experts about core outcome sets for back pain. So basically, the core outcome sets, um, sets of outcomes that would be mandatory in all clinical trials for back pain. So firstly, decide which domains we should collect, and then which instruments in each domain we should use. For RCTs in back pain, based upon a quite large Delphi study, we found that uh, disability has to be measured. I think no one will question this. And the only questionnaires that were recommended, based upon clinical, clinical, important, different sensitivity, all these questionnaires were the Rollo-Morris and the Oswestry Disability Index. So we are using one of the best questionnaires to measure this, and what I can say is that, uh, to date, nothing is better than these ones. A second option that we could use, but we were highly criticized in the past for this, was to use the patient-specific function scale. So when the patient said, I uh, have problems, for example, to bend my knees, to play tennis, for example, and they, and they rate their, their disability on specific questions. But there's a, quite a lot of body of literature that hates the patient-specific function scale. They are much more sensible because they are specific for the patient. For this particular trial, we decided not to use it. But, again, we are pretty confident that the Morris did a good job. The results of the trial cannot be attributed for the lack of, sensibility of the, the sensitivity of the Rollo-Morris in this case, in my view.
1: Fair enough. And it's been used in other studies, so I yeah. get it. Uh, it's a very reasonable choice. Well, the, the, and the, the,
0: interesting, isn't it? Like, in America, they, we use quite a lot of the Oswestry questionnaire, but in Europe, in Australia, here in Brazil, we use quite a lot of the morris And the correlation between the two questionnaires are quite high anyway, so... I don't think it makes a lot of difference. Uh, You can use it either.
1: Yeah, I agree. You could also have considered a more generic measure of disability, which studies have shown can also be quite useful, even in uh, conditions such as low back pain. But I think the reasoning behind your choice makes, makes very good sense to me. You know, in terms of a bottom line question, It's interesting to me in your discussion, you talk about that there's a lot of research now that shows that the various classification systems have failed to show clinically significant differences in outcomes when compared to more generic therapies that are not in patient subgroups. Does it lead you to question the clinical relevance of patient classification in low back pain? Leo, I'm interested in what you're thinking is currently you've done so much work in this area.
0: My gut feeling on this, Alan, is that, first, the result of our trial is not very surprising as to date for chronic back pain patients. I'm unaware of any subgroup that was better than the control group, a good control group like we use in this trial. The only exception for this was a clinical trial, the cognitive function therapy made by Peter Sullivan at that time, and this trial is problematic on itself, and Peter is replicating this trial in a better way now. The second thing that I can see in all trials that subgroups are not better than general exercise groups, and I'm going to talk specifically about the trial that we've done, I cannot see the results of my trial as negative. If you look at the within-group differences in both groups, the effect size in both groups are very large and highly above the minimal clinically important difference. Most of the patients experience improvements above between 40 to 60%, over the course of 8 weeks, so I think patients were happy to receive either of the treatments. So the true interpretation of the trial is that both interventions can be considered as useful for patients, especially because we know the exercise is better than placebo. And if you think about evidence-based practice, the therapist could use whatever they like as long as they use an exercise approach for the patient. So if they prefer to subclassify the patient, that's fine. It won't be much better than if they don't do this. But we cannot say that these treatments are useless. They are simply different, in my opinion. So this is a more relaxing way to look at the results of the trial because patients got improvements over the course of the treatment. So this is the first
1: thing. Could I comment on that, though, before you go on? Yeah, yeah, sure. Because I agree totally with you. I don't see your trial in any way as a negative trial because I agree when you look at your tables, both groups clearly improved substantially. But it does raise questions in my mind about whether or not patient classification into subgroups is worth doing. In that sense, doesn't it raise questions about the utility of doing that versus a more generalized approach?
0: I think my view at the moment is that it seems that we still haven't found a true subgroup for patients. The existing models are not good, good, are not better than the current best practice. Especially for this trial, I think the MSI approach, like uh, in my view, is similar to the McKenzie approach, are very mechanically based. And most of psychological, psychosocial components are completely ignored in this specific type of treatment. And we knew that psychosocial components are crucial in the treatment of back pain patients. So if you look at all descriptions for MSI, for example, for the MDT, all these treatment approaches are just a fraction of what we're supposed to do. We have some good options for treatment classification for acute patients. For example, the treatment-based classification, which is pretty popular in America, I think it's a good option. It's not excellent, but it's better than the current practice. We have, that at the moment, they start back-screening too, in terms of prognostic stratification That works reasonably well. There's quite a lot of replication studies with good results. We have the cognitive function therapy that mixes up lots of psychosocial components, and mechanical problems. that could be a good option, but it needs replication. And my view, Ala, is that these trials are excellent for everyone to be a bit more careful about subgrouping, and there's a lot of work to be done. I think there's a lot of clinicians that start using subgroup classifications without being properly tested in clinical trials. So physical therapy, yep. historically, I think medicine, historically, works the other way around. There's an idea everyone uses, and then there's a clinical trial. said, say, oh, I'm sorry, that's not the way it is. I think we should go step by step. We get the idea, we test, and if this is better than current practice, let's use it. If not, it's just a good idea. The problem is that, that causes a lot of frustration in clinicians because there's a promise. The rationale is good. The promise is good but by the end of the day, it's not better than best practice. So in terms of of public health systems, I don't think we should use subgrouping the way it is at the moment. I think we need to investigate this further, try to understand sources of back pain, and and try to identify better way of stratifying these patients, test them properly, and then use.
1: I couldn't agree with you more, and I think that's why this study is particularly uh, important and has a lot of clinical relevance. Well, I want to thank you, Leo, for taking the time to talk to me about your study. I really appreciate you and your colleagues publishing it in PTJ. I would encourage listeners to read the study, and I wish you'd continue success, you and your group, on further work in this area. Thanks.
0: Wonderful, Alan. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's always a pleasure to send my best papers to PTJ, and thank you very much.